This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. This episode features a conversation with Isabel Steichen, the co-founder and CEO of Lupi, a new food startup that has tapped into the protein power of the lupini bean to make tasty, sustainable, plant-based energy bars. In this episode, we talk about what makes Lupini beans so special and why has it taken so long for them to come to the U.S. Why Isabel launched a food company built around the Lupini bean. Her choice to launch a product in the energy bar category. We also talk about the Lupi brand and how they are positioning their products in a crowded and competitive food category, plus a whole lot more. This is Isabel Steichen and the Lupi story. Isabel Steichen from Lupi, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm super excited about this conversation. So really, really appreciate you taking the time and having me on the show. Yeah, I know. I'm excited to uh, good to see you again uh, over Zoom this time. But yes. that's the new yes. world we live in. The so. new normal. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm just embracing it and going for it. I would never do podcasts over Zoom. <laughs> but, you know, I guess all those nevers have been thrown out of the window now. So... Exactly. Except a new reality. So let's uh, let's talk about your uh, new company, Loopy. Um, you know, I could start so many different places, but I obviously the the first question I have is because your product uses such a unique ingredient that I frankly had never heard about till I heard about Loopy. Um, mm-hmm. When did you first hear about the Lupini bean, and and why did it get you so interested and excited? Yeah, totally. That that throws me straight back to my origins. Uh, you know, I grew up in Europe and I was always kind of familiar with lupini beans. I grew up in Luxembourg. There's lots of um, Italian immigrants, actually. And lupini beans are originally from Italy, from the Mediterranean region. And so they eat them in a pickled format, traditionally. So I knew that they existed. I was aware of them. But they weren't really on my radar until I want to say like four or five years ago. So I had already moved to the States. I moved here in 2013 and um, have developed a huge passion, as you know, for for the plant-based space. Um, You know, I went vegan in 2013 when I moved to the U.S., uh, was vegetarian before, lots of confusion for my family, you know, really hard to explain why I was doing that and, and what that even was. But when I moved here, I I kept getting the same questions uh, from all of my American friends and family members, and they were always related to nutrition. Like there was a lot of curiosity about it, um, about my diet choices. But um, people were really worried, and specifically, and I'm, I mean, we all as vegans have heard this question one million times. But where I was getting my protein from, and to me, that really stood out as a European where nutrition is really not the primary driver for people's food decisions back home but it really is in the States. And so I started really digging into that inside and I I quickly realized that there was a huge opportunity to address that protein problem and and challenge. 
And looking at the market, I, I found that a lot of the solutions uh, that exist are suboptimal. Obviously, you know, animals, we, we know why that is not the best way to get your protein. And then a lot of the plant-based options are really processed and, and use isolates and really processed ingredients. And at the end of the day, they really don't deliver on nutrition, I would argue. And so, and again, there's nothing wrong with them in theory, and they are great transition foods potentially. And have helped the vegan food movement to become more mainstream, but I think they really don't deliver on the actual initial reason why people consume or try to eat more plant-based. So that long story to tell you, I started looking at ingredients and thinking, is there is there an ingredient out there that can solve this problem without needing to process it in that crazy way and making like isolates and stripping it basically of all other nutrients? And that's when I came back to Lupini Beans. So I actually visit my family in Europe quite regularly when, you know, in times where we can travel and love going to local grocery stores and checking out what, what's up. And so I started seeing a lot of products um, that were using Lupini Beans in different formats. So I knew them as a whole bean, as a pickled bean, but I hadn't seen them in other applications until a few years ago and saw, oh, this ingredient is really versatile. And and then I started researching it and literally learning everything I could. I mean, I talked to farmers in Europe and policymakers and um, talked to people here in the States who knew about it, researchers, anyone and everyone I could find. And I felt like I was just like uncovering layer by layer and learning about this magical little ingredient that is incredibly powerful from a nutrition perspective, because it is the bean with the highest concentration of plant-based protein. And I'm like, how, how do Americans not know about this? It's, it's the perfect solution, but it also delivers on fiber. It delivers on minerals and, and tons of other nutrients. And then on the other side, you know, it's important for me to think about what are the other externalities that are created by your food choices and environmental impact. And obviously animals are a huge share on the priority list and looking at the environmental impact, you know, lupini beans are a rotation crop. They fix nitrogen in the soil, really good for soil revitalization really adaptable to different climates, don't require a lot of irrigation resources to grow. So it's just like, this is checking all the boxes. And it just excited me so much. And I saw huge opportunity for this little ingredient um, here in the U.S. market. Yeah. Why do you think it wasn't uh, well-known in the U.S. and somehow has taken all these years to, until yourself and I think one other company have bought this yeah. in product form into the US. I mean, lately, you keep hearing about new ingredients that are superfoods that are sustainable that have, you know, all these nutrients in it. And it's usually from uh, somewhere in South America or some yeah. far flung region of Asia. And the lupini bean is strange in that sense, because it's it's well known in Europe. And one would have thought that this would have made it to the U.S. and have become part of our agricultural system a long time ago. What are the reasons why it didn't happen is what I'm more curious about. Yeah. yeah. So thinking about the American agricultural system, I think starting there is a good point to start. You know, when you look at what has happened over the last 20, 30, 40 years, um, it's basically the opposite of fostering biodiversity. There has been a reduction in crop growing. There has been um, a concentration on basically three main crops um, that are, you know, a corn, soy, and wheat that are feeding the vast majority of this country and the vast majority of the animals that are then feeding the country. And so these crops have, um, these monocultures have been fostered over the last uh, decades in this country, and they are highly subsidized. It's very hard to compete with, with soy on a pricing perspective. If you look at the huge scale that that ingredient is grown at and the fact that it is just dirt cheap, you know, but at the same time, you're getting something that is oftentimes grown in soils that are totally depleted of nutrients. So it's not really, again, nutritious anymore. And a lot of the soy in this country is GMO, GMO soy. So there, there's a lot of problems with that. And there's just a lot of problems in general with the agricultural system. And I think about biodiversity a lot because I get the question a lot, why is lupini not a thing here yet? And, you know, I feel there's this one stat that, that talks about how I think it is, I want to get this right, but I think it is like five animals and seven plants that feed 70% of the planet. So it's such a small amount, small number of um, animals and plants that basically feed the majority 
uh, of humans and thinking that we haven't really been fostering, including and introducing new crops that don't all, only benefit human health, but also benefit soil health, which then again benefits human health in return. So that long, long answer to say, I think it's very hard for a new ingredient to actually be grown at scale and compete with big industry in the States. So there's that piece. And then there's the piece around consumer interest. And I think when I moved to the States in 2013, veganism was just starting to become a thing. I felt, you know, I felt like New York was just like vibrating with vegan restaurants and options, but a lot of the rest of the country wasn't there yet. And then over the last seven years, I mean, what has happened in terms of innovation in the vegan space is just mind blowing. But that also came at a time where consumers started being more interested in some of um, those plant-based alternatives. So I think it just takes time for consumers to develop the interest and curiosity to get their foods um, from other sources. And, you know, we are creatures of habit, so it takes time to be open and discover new ingredients. So I would say that is, that is, those are probably the primary reasons why something like lupini isn't known here yet. Yeah. And I, I think that's, um, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought up sort of what has happened in the last 30 to 60 years, because that is usually the, the answer to why most things aren't done the right way in this country. And I think as the, the system has evolved in a way uh, to just make it make products available at scale and to and the focus has really not been on diversification on soil health on nutrition at all but i do think in the last say a decade maybe that has been changing thanks to firstly the emergence emergence of the national natural food industry and the interest in um in more diverse sources of ingredients um and maybe somehow the lupini bean just got lost amongst the mix of things uh, and never found a real world application. So, you know, I, I've, and you mentioned this as well, something about the nutrition of the beans. I've, I've been doing my own research on that and frankly quite surprised that this has taken so long to get here, but better late than never, right? Then the next question that came up, which I couldn't get a real answer to on the internet, at least, is how versatile mm -hmm. is this bean, right? Is this, are we talking about a bean? That can one of the reasons soy is so big is because it's capable of doing so much. Absolutely. Uh, um, and of course, we've built an industry around it, and so now we are mm -hmm. attached to all those outcomes. Is the lupini bean similar in the sense that you know what, what can be done with it? Can and and maybe yeah. maybe maybe technology is the barrier, or maybe not. Like what what is preventing us from? From exploit, exploiting is a terrible word, but <laughs> from tapping into the potential that that bean has to offer from a nutrition as well as formats and yeah. use cases. Totally. Yeah. I would say I would start um, with the fact that lupini is often called soy of the north. Um, so because it is grown in a lot of northern region uh, in Europe and it can actually adapt to colder climates. Um, so soy is usually grown in warmer climates. Lupini is way more versatile there and way, sorry, way more adaptable there. So that, that's one thing. It is a true um, potential competitor also in the sense, when you look at your nutrition profile, people always talk about complete proteins and the fact that, you know, we obviously find complete proteins in the animal world, but um, you also find it in some plants and some of the plants are soy and quinoa, but then lupini beans actually also happen to have a complete chain of amino acids. So they are also a complete protein. Another thing that makes them highly um, you know, competitive with, with soy, um, I would argue they probably have a lot of benefits on top of that. They are higher in fiber. They are actually lower in um, carbohydrates, which some consumers are interested in as well. So that there's a lot of things there that they have that are even better depending on what you're looking for. Um, and then talking about uh, the versatility, I would say it is very, very similar to soy. And a lot of that innovation has, has been happening in Europe and other parts of the world. Actually, as a matter of fact, the biggest producer of lupini beans is Australia. Um, not because they are from there, but Australians discovered the bean at the beginning of the 20th century. Their soils were totally depleted of nutrients. So they started importing lupini and revitalizing their soils and then they were like wait we can eat this thing and it's delicious and it's so good for you and so they produce about 70 percent of um the lupini supply worldwide and a lot of the product innovation is coming from there as well as europe so in europe you'll find 
you know, lots of different products like ice cream and you find uh, dairy replacements using Lupini snacks, center of the plate applications. It's just incredibly um, versatile. And I think there's, there's obviously a huge opportunity there um, in the States as well. Wow. So it's just a question of, of um, it has never been a prior. Like, I guess it's where peas are now in the US, right? You find pea yeah. protein or oats for that matter. Uh, yeah. Everyone's into oat milk at this point. That, so you're saying there's almost, there seems to be, at least from your research, no reason why a lupini bean can't be converted. Not that we want to do that, but if you chose to, into uh, an ingredient that can be used in a meat replacement or even as in a you know dairy-free cheese or milk application, yeah. you, you think it has that much potential? I think it has a ton of potential there. I think it depends on, you know, right now, I don't want to bore it people with details yeah. here or with, but in terms of, if you think about uh, protein isolation processes, I know that a lot of the technology today is very much focused on soy and pea. Like we really know how to isolate protein from these ingredients. A lot of um, protein isolates are used or protein concentrates for a lot of the meat re replacements. So you would have to probably catch up there and, and, you know, come up with a technology that can do that, but it's also nothing impossible. And clearly it's already done in Europe. So it's possible to do it. Um, I'm more interested personally, and I think there is a huge market for using the whole ingredients in a more wholesome format. I'm less in, in, interested in the in the super processed applications, and I think a lot of consumers, like I mentioned earlier, are more interested in that wholesome format. But yeah, I think there is huge opportunity. And you know, you touched on oats. I mean, everyone is talking about Oatly. It's it's super exciting, right? It's it's amazing. But that business has been around in Sweden for 30 years, so. They were they were drinking oat milk way before Americans even thought about that. And Americans have been eating oats, but they haven't really thought about oat milk until until more recently. So, you know, I think a lot of it is just consumers catching up and, and starting to to be interested in some of these novel applications of ingredients that are really old and have been around for a really long time. Yeah. And one last question on lupinis, because I, I can spend the entire hour just <laughs> geeking out on this bean, but we probably will bore everyone. But um, so there's, uh, there shouldn't be any reason this can't be grown in the US besides the willingness to do it, right? In theory, that shouldn't, right? Okay. I mean, um, it is it is extremely adaptable, and and that's something that we have been adaptable from a from a growing perspective. Something we have been um, we have been exploring actually at Loopy, and we are we have a partnership um, where we started exploring some of that. Um, you know, building out a local supply chain for the ingredient. Obviously, a lot of that takes a long time, and there needs to be interest. But I I personally think, I mean, from all the conversations that I've had there is a lot of interest actually among farmers to diversify their crop growing and an ingredient like lupini that is a great rotation crop and farmers are looking for that. It's very appealing. Um, so, and then, you know, it's a proven ingredient in other parts of the world, like people eat it in other parts of the world and love it. So there is, there is definitely a proof of concept in that way, but it obviously takes time to build out that supply chain locally. Yeah. Yeah. So let's move to the exciting stuff then. When at one what point did you decide? All right, I've learned enough. I think there's something <laughs> here. Um, I'm willing to bet on it and and actually create a product, launch a company. What, at what point did you get convinced that this was the right move to make, uh, and that you were going to be the one to do it? move forward, come up with a product idea? Maybe you were doing your research and stumbled upon a product idea. How did that, how did the early days of Bloopy as a company come about? Yeah. Yeah. I would say, so honestly, I've been researching the ingredient for probably, like I mentioned, four years or something like that. So I was still working full time. I mean, my background is in, in early stage startups, mostly actually in tech startups. Um, so I was working full time and just doing this on the side and kind of exploring and learning about it. And um, I'm uncovering interesting things. And, and at the same time, in parallel in my career, I was just learning so much by working, um, you know, in early stage companies and being an early uh, employee and seeing businesses grow. And even though you could argue, you know, working for a tech company, a software company is not the same as working for a food business. I think a lot of the skills are actually can translate really easily. And I think when it comes to you know, problem solving and, and, and building something from scratch and taking something that's a concept and you know, turning it into reality, into a product that people are using, there's a lot of parallels between the digital space and the, the physical um, space. So that excited me 
um, and, and made me feel like I really wanted to start a business um, that, you know, was very much aligned with who I want to be in the world and what I want to create. And I talked a little bit about my personal journey, but, you know, ever since I discovered how amazing, you know, plant-based eating is and how it has all these positive externalities, not just for my health, but for, for the planet, as you know, you, you know, um, I just felt like I wanted to share that with the world and make an impact and create a product and dedicate my, my, my career to something that was so many meaningful and important for me. Um, so that had been kind of in the back of my mind for a while. And then I ended up leaving my last startup job in uh, summer of 2018. And honestly, I had been with the company for two years. I, I loved the team. They were incredibly inspiring. It's a women run company and I learned so much. Um, but I just felt, I don't know what it was, but I just felt like I, I, I needed to, to start my own thing. And I didn't really know what to do, but I had all of these thinking about this ingredient and I had played around in my kitchen with it and researched it and talked to tons of people about it. And by crazy coincidence, I was approached by Human Ventures, um, a New York-based startup studio. And they were really interested in building something in the plant-based space. And it just felt kind of like crazy because here I was, I had left my job and was kind of like, don't really know what's next, but I know I want to do something that is really deeply meaningful to me. And it's almost like I put that in the universe and the universe responded back and was like, yeah, we would love to work with you. And so I joined them initially just um, to help them with some research and identify business opportunities. And they quickly realized how passionate I was and, and understood that I had done a lot of research before. And um, so then I kind of pitched them the early concept of, of Loopy. And we have looked at different product applications um, but ended up deciding, you know, launching in the snack space is really important. Consumers are looking for on-the-go options that are convenient. Even now when you're stuck at home, you, you're probably getting tired of cooking all of your meals and you really want something easy that also delivers on nutrition. So there's obviously a huge opportunity there. And I also realized I'm introducing a new ingredient and, you know, you need to do it in a format that is accessible to consumers. And so we saw the the bar as or the bar category as a little bit of a Trojan horse, you know, to introduce this ingredient in a in a category and format that consumers love and understand. So that's how we landed on on that. And and then human, I, I found a co-founder, which is a, a separate story, but um, got very lucky there. And then um, and then human was excited and they invested and we've been off to the races ever since. That's, I mean, it's a huge leap of faith to take, right? To, to go from being passionate about plant-based eating and about health and nutrition and about sustainability. And I know you've been passionate about that for years now, but it's another thing to go and and think you have it in you to do what it takes to launch a food company because those are two very different things. And often I... Oh. I talk people out of it when they first tell me they're thinking about it because uh, mostly because I want to see if they're really prepared to understand how tough it is going to be. And I haven't done it myself, but I've talked to enough who do it. And I know enough people who run companies in the space where, you know, what you read in the headlines and what you, what you hear on podcasts and, and yeah. watching interviews on YouTube or elsewhere just talks about all the, it's everyone giving you the most, uh, positive spin on food totally. entrepreneurship when the realities of it are super complicated and going back to even what you said in the beginning in terms of uh, why perhaps the lupini bean never caught on in the u.s uh, and the, the answer that you gave was accurate which is that largely it's a systemic issue because the system mm -hmm. is designed in a way where it makes it really tough for new ingredients to enter the food marketplace mm -hmm. that's true also for new companies and new products because you the moment you you decide I want to do something really revolutionary. I want to do this new ingredient, create something that's going to be super healthy and amazing and taste great. You then find you have to now operate by the rules of this matrix that is the food system. That is, totally. you know, a huge pain in the ass for the most part. Uh, if you're dealing with, you know, distribution and retail and you know, direct to consumer has its own challenges now. It's totally. not necessarily easy. So I'm usually the guy who's who's telling people. Just because you love food and because you're passionate about it yeah. doesn't mean you should be running a food company. And I'm sure totally. you you had to think through these, you know, 
firstly, you're taking a career risk, but on top of that, you are also taking a leap of faith that you will learn the skills necessary to pull this mm -hmm. off. And I think part of that must have also been finding a co-founder who does have a um, background in Absolutely. the food industry. So uh, I, I don't think there's a question there yet, but um, what I would like to get an insight from you on is that what eventually gave you the confidence to take that step, number one. So it's a two-part question. Take that, mm -hmm. that, take that leap into this new world of food entrepreneurship. And then secondly, uh, and maybe you can spend more time on this question because you did touch on it, <clears throat> was the the application of energy bars. I mean, I find that mm -hmm. to be worth an entire episode in itself. I mean, the energy bar nutrition category is fascinating. It's it's a big market, but it's also very competitive. Mm -hmm. I mean, I read a stat the other day that you walk into Whole Foods and there's like 35 brands with 150 products. Uh, yeah. And so it isn't necessarily an easy category to be noticed in either. Um, so walk me through those two parts. One is your yeah. decision to, to, to take this leap of faith. And then secondly, what gave you the confidence that the energy bar, the nutrition bar category was going to be the one to go with? Totally. So I would answer your first question by just taking a step back. Like when I look at my career so far, none of it has been traditional at all. I have, I am not doing what I went to school for. I have an undergrad degree in econ and political science. And I went to grad school in Paris for um, urban, urban planning and urban development. And then I moved to the States and I worked in that field for just about a year for a nonprofit, a really great organization but I just didn't see myself in that space. At the same time, I had learned great skills being in grad school, understanding how research works. Um, and then I started working for startups and learned you know, how to solve problems basically and how to think about things that nobody really has done before because none of the companies that I worked for were companies that existed in that format before. And so I feel like I kind of, decided at a very early point of my career that I was not going to pursue the things that I actually went to school for. And I felt that in the States, there was actual encouragement for that. You know, that is something that is super different in Europe. Like most of my friends who I went to school for work in exactly that industry. And it's not really, entrepreneurship is not really as developed in Europe and encouraged for, for various reasons. But I felt that that was really different when I moved here. And I had some friends who worked for startups and I saw them do all these things. And I was like, how did you learn that? And they were like, well, I just, I'm just learning it while I'm doing it and um, figuring out the answers as I go. So I think there's something that the problem solving piece, along with having a growth mindset, that, that environment really, really excites me. And in my last job, as a matter of fact, software company, um, I worked really closely with the tech team, with the CTO who... I, it was an amazing, smart guy and such an incredible mentor. And I started learning about coding and um, product development and all these things where if you would have asked me like 10 years ago or five years ago, I said, oh, I, I don't want to do that. I don't know how to do that. And what I learned was that you can figure things out, right? There is, you might not have done it before, but you, it's like when you're five, you know, and you're learning something new, you're learning a new language, like your brain, it will be maybe painful at the beginning and difficult, but then over time, if you spend enough time, you know, practicing, you can get there. And so I had seen that throughout my career. I had seen that I could be successful in roles and jobs that I didn't, you know, go to school for. And so that gave me the confidence that if I would pair that curiosity mindset and problem solving with something that drove me so deeply, which was, you know, building a food company that is, creates better for your food that is also better for the planet. I thought if I put all of that energy behind that, you know, mentality, it will work. And then the other piece is how do I identify my blind spots and how am I really honest with myself and realize the things that I don't know. And I had seen, I had worked for different startups, as I, as I said, and some of them uh, were successful and some of them were less successful. And the ones that I saw were the most successful were the ones that were led by co-founding teams with super complementary skills, very different perspectives. And um, so I went out on a quest to find that perfect, you know, person in a way that was different and came from a different background, but shared the same passion. And I think I would absolutely never be able to build this business by myself. And I think having that value that Ali, my co-founder is adding is incredible 
and being open to learning from her and understanding, you know, how this industry works because mm-hmm. she spent her whole career in it. But then on the flip side, I'm going to be the one who says, let's try this, let's try that, you know, find like alternative solutions um, for where we are right now in our business. I think that combination is is great and it's de-risking the business, right? Because I'm bringing other skill sets. I'm diversifying, going back to biodiversity. Like I'm doing the same in the ecosystem that is my business, um, which is bringing in other skill sets and perspectives. So that's to answer your first question. And then the second one was around the bar category, which I know is a is a, is a scary category, right? I mean, we're not shying away from, from saying that. Um, that being said, it is also a huge category, like you said. And it is a category that is continuing to grow. And it's a category where there's tons of white space. So especially when you look at the plant-based solutions that are on the market right now, I think of it as two big buckets in the plant-based space. You have the really um, minimal ingredients options that are usually just dried fruit and nuts like a Lara bar. And then you have the highly processed solutions that have protein isolates and a million other ingredients of which, you know, you probably don't know 90% of them and don't know what they are. So in that category, there's nothing that is actual real food uh, that also delivers on nutrition. So I would argue, you know, Larabars are, there's nothing wrong with them, but they really don't deliver on protein or fiber in the way that we can do it, for example. So I think identifying that huge white space was was super exciting and creating real innovation by using a whole bean, because as a matter of fact, we are the first bean-based market on the, um, sorry, bean-based bar on the market that is really um, unique. And that is something that consumers are looking for as they are looking to um, to eat more whole, whole sources of protein. And a lot of that was validated through a lot of the research that I did with human in the early days. And then also through a lot of the expertise that Ali brought to the table through some of the learnings that she had gathered throughout her career in, in food. Yeah. Yeah. I, I read this uh, fascinating article, which I'm sure you have, have definitely come across uh, that Outside Magazine wrote about a year ago, maybe February of 2019, talking about why energy bars or yeah, energy bars are like America's favorite snack food and how it yeah how it came to be, and the kind of history of again, I I like to go deep into to how things got to the way they are, where you walk into a grocery store now and 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 energy bars beyond just for people going on hikes or mountain bike rides or, or, or runs or anything athletic and it's become this de facto snack thing that's so normal uh, and is kind of embedded in our culture but if you look trace the history of it it's, it's really kind of fascinating and in a weird way we're kind of going full circle and I think this isn't a unique idea I came up with it. in fact that article talks about it where it started off as almost like space food for astronauts and then eventually mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s became more for athletes and in the sports nutrition mm-hmm. space. And then over the last two decades or so has just sort of become a snack food. Uh, mm-hmm. And now what we're seeing happen in the energy bar space is this going back to like real ingredients. And like this mm-hmm. RX bar is a great example of it. They're the most mm-hmm. recent successful company in mm-hmm. the space. And their whole, well, down to their packaging was the idea that it is simple. And it tells you about yeah. shifting consumer habits, how their habits might change, but the category just continues to grow and adapt to meet these diverse needs of uh, consumers. So it's a fascinating space that most regular people wouldn't think twice about, except they all probably buy energy bars. So, you know, whether we understand them or not, or understand what they exist for or not, most people I know, including myself, consume energy bars. Uh, yeah, in yeah, some format, absolutely. so it's an interesting category. It kind of doesn't one one side you can say it doesn't need to exist, but then why does it exist, <laughs> and why is it so big? Yeah, and I think I think it will continue to exist because we will not walk back on convenience. You know, yeah. America is the country of convenience. Like everything has to be easy. We talk about big ag. You know, a lot of that is because people wanted convenient, easy, cheap food. And so now I think there's new parameters that consumers are looking for. They are looking for nutrition. They are looking for wholesome. They are, a lot of them are starting to look for, you know, eating products that companies make that are mission driven. So they want to resonate with these companies on a more personal level as well. But convenience is not going to go away. And even if you think about what's been happening, you know, with the pandemic, we are less on the go. Sure, we might not 
grab the bar, you know, while we are, I don't know, on our way home in the subway or, or uh, on our way to the office. But we still want convenience. We, we see, you know, all of these meal companies that are blowing up because people, you know, it'd be lovely if everyone would just cook their three meals a day. But that's that's not I don't think that we are going to go back to that. I think we still want convenience. But now we have a higher standard as a consumer and we really want to eat something that really delivers on nutrition, but also that resonates with us from from a mission perspective. And so I think that's that's the opportunity in, in the bar space specifically. Yeah. So let's talk about um, your go-to-market strategy. I know that's a bit of a it's an it's an interesting question because you launched at the beginning of this year and we're in 2020 in case anyone's listening yeah. to this years <laughs> from now and uh, 2020 didn't go exactly according to plan so so tell us what happened with the launch and what were you initially focused or thinking about doing this year and how did mm-hmm. you have to pivot given what happened in the world yeah we completely uh, changed our strategy when the pandemic happened and when the lockdowns across the country started. So initially we launched in physical retail. Our big thing was, you know, we are a new ingredient. We want to educate customers. We know that most food purchases happen in physical retail. So we want to be exactly there and educate our consumers there and spend a lot of time the first two months. We launched in January, January 1st, basically of 2020. Um, doing a lot of demos and sampling and, and being at a ton of events locally. And then we were also selling directly into office spaces um, and yoga studios and gyms. So a lot of these more alternative channels that were a little bit more focused on brand building, um, but then, you know, having all these natural retailers. So we grew to, I think, just over 80 accounts within the first two months, which was exciting. And we saw there was a great interest and and people started asking for the product and that we saw all of that traction and we started actually talking to some bigger retailers. So the the plan for this year was to get some of these big retail anchor accounts and expand regionally in some of those anchor accounts and stay really focused on physical retail. And then the pandemic hit and very quickly it became clear that buyers were just so in survival mode and really just trying to keep, you know, toilet paper stocked on shelves and just the basics that there was no no opportunity for us to launch in any of these new accounts, but also it would have been totally, um, you know, almost a waste because consumers weren't going to stores to discover products at all. So we saw that as an opportunity to get smart on the DTC side of our business, which we had planned to put off until maybe end of like 2021, basically, and um, started off by optimizing the website for consumer purchasing, worked on building out our distribution piece there because DTC requires daily fulfillment, which is very different than our self-fulfillment into retailers that we had done the first two months. And once we had all the infrastructure in place, which we did within, I would say, the first two months when the pandemic hit, we started investing into into marketing and, and being really smart about layering on different strategies there and have seen really exciting and incredible growth on that side, which is wonderful. And while, you know, everything has gone exactly the opposite of what we expected, I think there's also a lot of benefits to being D2C. You know, obviously you have a really close relationship with your customer. I mean, I'm getting emails from people every day with feedback, with ideas and reasons why they love the product or things that we could improve. People can leave reviews on the website um, and then we obviously, you know, have an advantage there. We have great margins because we are we are fulfilling directly. We don't have to go through gatekeepers like distributors. Um, so a lot of benefits there and a great way for us to just learn quickly and build the brand quickly and also be more targeted when we acquire customers online. So that's what we've done. What we still believe is, you know, retail is the way to go in the long run. I think a lot of consumer behavior has shifted over the pandemic. People are more open to discovering new products online. That being said, when you think about the mass market, you think about physical retail. So we are we are keeping, you know, in touch with all of our buyer contacts there. And um, we were able to stay close with a lot of our accounts during the pandemic and just waiting for a time to go back into that. Yeah, I mean, I think you you obviously made the whether it was a decision that was forced, but it's undoubtedly the right decision. And maybe looking back, it 
you may be thankful that you got a chance to almost yeah. test the market and get a sense of what what consumers like and don't like and maybe maybe dial in what your brand and marketing message will be. So that kind of is a good segue into a topic that I think is very relevant to everything that we've been discussing, whether it's the it's the crowded energy bar market in general, which still has a lot of potential, don't get me wrong, um, or the fact that, you know, plant-based eating is now rising in popularity. Yet, as you said right in the beginning, most people who are drawn to eating plant-based or choose to eat plant-based, when you go past the price, taste, and convenience factors, which I'm assuming every product that hopes to be successful will tackle those three mm-hmm. factors. The next mm-hmm. issue is usually consumers are making the choice because they think it's the healthier choice. So mm-hmm. plant-based has so far managed, and, and we'll see how long it lasts, but when people think plant-based, they think it's better for me. And totally. s- and the truth is, as you said in the beginning, a lot of products don't deliver on that promise. Um, they may be more sustainable for sure, and they may definitely be better for animals, um, and they could be better than most meat, depends on what the product is, of course. But is it truly healthy? And I think that the jury's still out on a lot of products right now in the market mm-hmm. because they're trying so hard to mimic something else that they lose a lot in the process. So mm-hmm. you are playing in this space of off, and I, I think that's the next wave. And I've, I've talked about this before. I think the first big wave of plant-based is let's just replicate everything that is a meat or dairy-based product and create a plant-based version just to show it's possible. Get people to believe. And I think those Mm -hmm. products are super important and get people to believe Mm -hmm. that this is possible. And once they accept eating plant-based is okay, even if I may not decide to ever go vegan, but eating plant-based is normal. It's culturally okay. Mm -hmm. Everyone's doing it. No one's dying. It's mainstream. Yeah. People, athletes are doing it. Celebrities are doing it. No one's, you know, no one's suffering from any nutrition deficiencies. The next wave is people are going to start asking questions. Okay, great. Mm-hmm. What makes one product different from the other? And this is also a result of competition, of course. As the mm-hmm. categories get crowded, the way for brands to stand out is to say, well, we aren't just plant-based, but we're also healthier. And I think that's the next wave. So you are you are part of that se- second wave, I think. And I think that's that's the right decision from a, at least from my point of view, where I sit, I think it's the right decision from a business standpoint and also the right decision from the long-term viability and sustainability of the plant-based food industry. But you still have to tackle this bigger problem, which is, and it comes down to building a brand. It comes down to marketing mm-hmm. is how do you stand out in this this crowded world of food? And so what is Loopy? I mean, the Loopy brand and how are you... And maybe you've just been testing it, or maybe you had, mm-hmm. uh, obviously you had some idea before you launched. Is, And I'll give you the example, and I mentioned RX Bar in the beginning. If you track, and I'm sure you've you've, you've done the research on, on them, because you're on that category. They, what they did right on many fronts, and what made them successful and eventually sell, mm-hmm. was they they hit on all these these factors that people cared about whether it's mm-hmm. the simplicity of the ingredients, the simplicity of the packaging. Um, and they they seem different for those reasons. But they also did it really well by targeting a certain niche market. They went after the yeah. CrossFit crowd. And they oh. relentlessly pursued them to the extent where, you know, it was tough to walk into or talk to anyone who did CrossFit and they hadn't heard of RX Bar. It was... Right. Kind, they right. kind of made it ubiquitous, right? So they... And then they built off that. That's not all they did. Yeah. They did Amazon. They did a lot more. So not that you have to follow RX's play or any other playbook. What is your sort of, what is the Loopy brand all about? Who are you focused on? Who is your target consumer? And, and how are you going about doing that? Yeah, totally, totally. So a big part of the research um, that I was doing when I worked with Human Ventures in early stages was around the reputation of veganism and plant-based eating. And one thing that I'm sure you you know about as well is the negative connotation that a lot of people still have with veganism and the fact that they find that a lot of time veganism or even plant-based is alienating, it's exclusive, it's either extremely expensive, not accessible, judgmental. There's a lot of negative baggage that comes with that. 
And so one big thing that we knew was that when we started building Loopy, we wanted to build an inclusive brand. And so a brand that speaks to a wider market, a brand that doesn't just speak to vegans, because vegans probably don't really care so much about protein, but that speaks to the broader group, what we call the conscious omnivore. So it's a consumer who is not necessarily trying to go entirely vegan, but it's a consumer who's woke and is looking to eat better, eat more plant-based, and also thinks about some of the other externalities of his or her food choices. So thinking about that, the way we built the brand is in a really open, playful way. You know, we have an incredible community manager who's who's doing a lot of our copywriting actually, and, and their background is in um, stand-up comedy and they are an incredible play writer. And so when we when we looked to fill that role, we were literally looking for someone with that profile who knew how to use language to create an inclusive brand. So when you go to our Instagram, you'll see we don't take ourselves too seriously. We're fun, we are inclusive, we we want to be um, accessible for people. And we also do that through, you know, the packaging, the design, the colors, um, to not put ourselves on this pedestal, but be really accessible for consumers. So that's one thing that's super important to us. Then in terms of building building out the brand, if you think about it, there's obviously like the bullseye target. And I think that's when you talk about RX, what they did really well is they they found these early, um, early, early adopters and super fans that were just super excited about the product because it was delivering on something super specific. And so there we obviously have the plant-based eaters that are driven by nutrition that turn around the label, that look at the ingredients that don't care about the grammage of a macronutrient, but care about how clean, how easy is this label? Do I understand everything that's in it? So that's a target audience and we don't have to explain much about the product and when we say it's made with a whole bean like the excitement is there and people those people want to try it and, and love it but then what we've seen and that's one of the cool things that we were able to get insights about doing uh, during the pandemic the fact that we are actually able to ship across the country we have seen all these other interesting secondary you know types of consumers pop up everywhere and some of them are busy moms that live in parts of the country that don't have access to health stores. And they might not be plant-based, but they are really interested in, in feeding themselves and their kids healthy snacks. And that's why they choose our product. So we are going after a lot of the other opportunities that are across different demographics, um, but are not necessarily part of our bullseye target, but that see other benefits. And a lot of that is very much driven by the fact that we deliver on nutrition and we are really transparent and honest as a brand. And I think a lot of consumers can um, can relate to that. Have you learned anything that surprised you in the last few months since you've been doing largely direct to consumer? Uh, and you've had some, I would say, time to play around with your brand messaging. Um, have you learned from the feedback you've gotten from consumers that maybe who you thought was your biggest super fans were not your biggest super fans? Or maybe it all just proved itself to be true. Yeah, I would say, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of learning. One of the main things that I was surprised about is when I look at the map of where we ship product, that there is so much product going to like the center of the country, to non-big urban areas. Obviously, East Coast, West Coast are the two biggest markets for us right now, New York, LA, San Francisco, which is obvious and in a way that's confirming, you know, the modern urban dweller who is conscious about what they put into their bodies. But seeing that there's so many people across the country that find out about the product and are excited and, and order and reorder, that's that's really exciting. And that to me confirms that this is more than just a niche product and that we are able to craft our messaging that, you know, it appeals to a vegan for whatever reason, um, but it also appeals to more of, I would say, a mass consumer for other reasons. And we are able to kind of um, straddle that and and to appeal to that market as well. And I think that is super exciting um, to think, especially if you think about how we're going to grow this brand and how we're making it more than just a niche product for dedicated um, health nuts, basically. So I think that that's exciting. I think also, you know, what you're talking about in terms of 
creating this lifestyle brand. It's more than just the next, um, you know, sports, uh, sports bar that delivers on this very specific diet, but it's, it's, and it's inclusive brand that, that delivers on eating healthy and making that accessible and fun and making you want to do it. Um, so I think that is something that we are trying to do. And, and it's, in a way, it is easier to create that piece of our brand online because we have so much attention now on our all, all these online channels. So I think um, from that perspective, that's definitely been, uh, you know, very beneficial for us. Trying to think of other learnings. Um, you know, one interesting thing, when you go back to the distribution strategy, yoga studios and gyms, another thing that we did a lot was um, actually sponsor local events. And we have continued doing that, but doing the digital version because a lot of these partners are now doing Zoom events basically. Um, and some of them are very much unrelated to food and health and nutrition. They are more about sustainability or conscious consumerism or conscious capitalism. And a lot of times when we sponsor those events, we get a lot of incredible feedback. And that, again, shows there's something additional that we are doing that maybe in our expert was not able to do, which was connect with consumers on a more emotional, deeper level and on the more mission side of things. And, you know, Ali and I talk about this all the time. We talk about why we're doing this and how if you consume our product, in a way, you're making a statement that you care about the planet, too. And a lot of consumers want to do that. And I think that that's where we are seeing really, really great and exciting reception. Yeah. I, I think you just have to find ways to be uh, uh, kind of have that out of the box thinking that you you mentioned in the beginning where you're able to, I, I think knowing too much about the energy bar market is actually not going to help you. I mean, you have to know something about it, but knowing too much about it will cloud your judgment and make you do the things that you think will work because it has worked for others. And I almost yeah. think like, Taking the product, not that you've asked for this, but I'm giving you my unsolicited advice, but taking the product and pulling it out of that space and bringing it into spaces yeah. where you'd least think an energy bar belongs because, and yeah. then giving it new meaning by being, we are just the sustainable snack available at this event that is about yeah. uh, sustainable lifestyles, or it could be about uh, uh, sound baths and spirituality, who knows what it is, right? Where the consumers who you think may resonate with your brand and your product, where are they going? What did they consume? Exactly. Who are they interacting exactly. with? What conversations? What is their lifestyle? Exactly. Yeah. And then finding yeah. a way to make Loopy as part of the conversation, right? So you, by showing up there and offering your products, you are now, you're part of that conversation. And so I think that's, that's the excitement of like, being a later entrant into a, a crowded category, but with a very unique product that has a unique story to tell. And you can kind of just, in some ways, just be yourselves and s speak your truth and then um, have people connect with that because everything else looks... Then the fact that there are 35 brands in, in the energy bar category in Whole Foods becomes an advantage because your voice is so unique in that space exactly. that you can't help but stand out, yeah. right? So yeah. there's something to that. I think I always, um, and that's what I liked about your, your branding and your kind of playful nature. It seems it was refreshing. And I feel like uh, a lot of brands play it safe because they think products in the category need to look in a certain way or be in a certain way because the successful ones look and feel the same. And then, yeah. and that they don't realize the danger in that is that unless you're really an extraordinary product, you're then just going to look be looked upon like the new X version of a product. Like you yeah. don't want to be like the healthy Cliff Bar. You don't necessarily no. want to be categorized or right. you know sort of lumped in a corner because of that. Right. And I will say to that to that you know, in that, in that topic, there is another thing that um, we learned and have been learning is that we have been able to get an incremental consumer back to this category. So we talk about this category, we talk about how crowded it is and how there's so many options, but there's so many consumers who have bar fatigue, who are kind of done with it because they look at the options and they're like, yeah, it's all kind of the same process stuff. And so what we have gotten over and over again from our consumers is that a lot of people come and buy us and say, I usually don't buy bars, but I buy your product mm -hmm. because it's actual food. And the fact that we hear that independently from so many people that then, you know, subscribe and, and place orders on a monthly basis 
really getting excited about, you know, there is this incremental consumers that we are actually attracting back to the category that has totally given up. That is a consumer that is just not looking at bars anymore as an option. And now is like, oh, wait, there is actually an option now that delivers on that. And maybe that's the consumer that usually eats, you know, a piece of fruit or nuts, but mm-hmm. is looking for something a little bit more holistic on the nutrition side. So that's exciting too, to see we getting new consumers back into the category. Yeah. I mean, you you could easily have not been a bar, right? You're you're a healthy snack that just so happens to be delivered in a bar format. Square. Exactly. Uh, in a square. And it's it's so funny exactly. that pe- consumer perceptions change the moment you change the shape of the product. Yes. And if you were totally. now in a pouch packet sold in tiny cubes, someone would think you're completely different. You're not you're not right. in the same category. That is so true. And so, so true. I, I mean I think it's smart that you're 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 picked a category that people are familiar with. And so mm-hmm. if for those who are into energy bars, they look at they will consider loopy as this unique new option that has Uh, a plant-based protein that's a whole food bar it's interesting but it also uh, is a good entry point to bring in as you just said that bring in customers that don't buy energy bars uh, i think they're kind of pointless uh, who just want healthy snacks and it just so happens that you are a bar (laughs) but uh, exactly so i like that i mean you can you can you can change the story depending on who is listening and and it, yeah. it is versatile enough where you can you can make it whatever and that's where the brand i guess and your marketing comes in because uh that's where you can bring it to life really right you can you can make this the the cool snack to take with you uh on on your night out or on 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 road trips or whatever you can you can create a new story for the energy bar because what it is exactly. at the end of the day it's just food right and we've created this yeah. whole the whole category exists because it's an idea we've someone invented. Exactly. Totally. And it is, that's what it is. It's just food. And we are actually pretty much the only one who's delivering on that. It's just food in a convenient format. And mm-hmm. you, you happen to call it a bar, but yeah. Yeah. So what's next? I mean, here you are uh, in the middle of slightly towards the end of the, your first year. And it's obviously been maybe not exactly how you imagined it to go, but um but you're still you're still you're still growing and you're still finding yeah. new customers. What's next for the brand? What are you what are you focused on in the coming months and, and the next year? Yeah, I mean so 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 much. Um so we are planning on launching new flavors, which is really exciting. I think, you know, we start with three, um, but there's so much opportunity to grow within within that. Um so we're adding some more flavors this year and the next year. And continuing to stay very focused on the DGC side of the business while also being open to seeing what's happening in retail. As I mentioned, we we had a few really exciting conversations there and just kind of waiting for things to open up again. Um, but our goal is to be in regional anchor accounts in 2021. So so you can find us in person uh, in more places. So yeah, stay, stay tuned for that. And for those who are listening and would like to try the product, what's the best way to order it on your website or Amazon? Yeah. Website is great. We do sell on Amazon, but, um, website is, is perfect. It's at getloopy.com, um, G E T L U P I I.com. And you can get the variety pack. So if you want to try all three flavors, um, that's an easy way to, to try all of them. Great. And in terms of, um, I know you said you started off uh, kind of almost like an incubated project at Human Ventures. Where are you mm-hmm. in, in that process uh, in your journey as a startup? I mean, food companies, coming back to why I tell people not to get into the food business, is they are very capital intensive. Yeah. Um, and it, there's so many moving parts. I mean, even if you've got the food all figured out and you've got the perfect tasting food at the totally. right price point, if you mess totally. up one thing, you, you know, you're, it could set you back by months. And then you layer on top of it this whole marketing piece and the storytelling. And it's just, yeah. um, it's just a lot of things to manage. So what, how are you managing that as a, as a lean, small company? Are you fundraising? What's next for you on that front? Yeah, we actually are currently fundraising. We did um, raise pre-seed money from Human. Um, they are the early believers. They wrote the first check and they have been really amazing partners throughout this journey. And we're now going out and looking for more capital to continue fueling you know, all the growth that we've been seeing over the last few months. And as you say, 
there's production and all of that. So it's a capital intensive business for sure. And uh, we are, we are raising to, to support that. And I probably should have asked this question right in the beginning. And maybe you, you did, you did, you did touch on some of this, but like, why, what, what drives you to still do this? It's been obviously a, a bit of a roller coaster since you started on, you took that leap of faith and you've, you've gone down this path and now you are, you're not backing down, you're moving forward, right? So what okay. inspires you to do this? Why are you doing, why do you think Loopy is important? Why does the world need it? I think that the value that I can add to the world is help um, people eat more plants. And, you know, I have been trying to do that in various ways. You know, I, I started a podcast a few years ago with my husband. That's kind of like a passion project that I had been doing for, for a few years, actually, as a side of my full-time job. And being able to dedicate my entire focus and my entire work time to something that I care about so deeply um, is super fulfilling. And I, I'm very much driven by that. And that's what get, gets me up in the morning. And I think helping to uh, influence that change and introducing a new ingredient that will help people eat more plants, but also helps to create a more sustainable food supply chain that makes me really happy the thought of that and you know while the the times have been insane there hasn't been a single moment where I was like I wish I wasn't doing this I'm like no I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to do this and give this my everything and 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 grow it and and I'm so grateful that I found a co-founder who shares the same passion and energy to push this push push this ship forward and so um yeah so that's what what gets me up Perfect. And uh, I close out my podcast with this question every time. And I feel like I haven't asked it in the last few episodes because it's been a really strange time where um, I think the my attention has been less on the future and more on how do we deal with what's happening around us right now. But we can't lose sight of the future because uh, a lot of the problems we see with our food system is because we we made decisions that were very very much based on short-term thinking rather than long-term thinking. And that's mm -hmm. why we find ourselves in a place where most of the food that we, we get that's available in this country is unhealthy and unsustainable. And I, you know this really well. This is partly why you do the work that you do and you have been doing it for years, even before you started Loopy. Um, but I feel you and, and companies like yours are part of this new food movement that are trying to create a better food future and where we're trying to rewrite what, what the story of our food system is going to be. And here, sitting in 2020, especially given the state of the world right now, it's, it's tough to know if, how far we'll get and how successful we'll be. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's take the optimistic scenario. What if, and I give the year 2050, because if by then we haven't solved some of these problems, we're, we're, we're going to be out of luck. So mm -hmm. there's only two ways this is going to go. We're going to do business as usual and end up in a completely unsustainable planet, an un uninhabitable planet, um, and face the consequences of our terrible decisions that we've made in the past and today. But if you get it right, if companies like Loopy and others in the plant-based food industry succeed and are able to provide, uh, find ingredients that are not only sustainable, but also nutritious, mm -hmm. create products that can meet this consumer demand for healthy, sustainable food, what if we could change the food system? What is what is your idea of a better food system in the year 2050 if, sorry, when we are successful? Yeah, I think it's it's diversity. You know, I think I'm a big believer in diversity across any industry. And I think I operate that way in my personal life. I operate that way in how I'm building my team hiring people that look different than me and are different than me. And I think it's the exact same in the food system. I think the diversity bet is the best bet to take and investing into that and going back a little bit to some of our roots and looking bad at what nature has to offer us before we started, you know, turning it around and, and kind of taking advantage of some of it. I think that those are the solutions and that is what creates the opportunity. And, and I hope that, you know, and, 2050 we will be in a world where people will be eating more than just five different animals and seven different crops so that's that's what i'm trying to be part of 
Well, thank you, Isabel. I, I definitely think you're onto something really interesting. I can't wait to see how this story evolves and and look forward to seeing all the growth in the next few months and years ahead. So good luck with all that you're doing with Lupi. Thank you so much. It was so wonderful talking to you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Mill Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.